Welcome to the Educational Renaissance Podcast, where we promote a rebirth of ancient wisdom for the modern era. We seek to inspire educators by fusing the best of modern research with the insights of the great philosophers of education. Join us in the great conversation and share with a friend or colleague to keep the Renaissance spreading. Jason Barney here for Educational Renaissance. Today I want to share with you about my fourth article in my series on Bloom's Taxonomy and Aristotle's Intellectual Virtues. I called it, When Blooms Gets Ugly, Cutting the Heart Out of Education. And I know that's a somewhat dramatic title, but I'm referencing C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man, where he talks about men without chests. And what I'm really trying to share here is that Bloom's taxonomy of the cognitive domain leaves out something so crucial to education. We might even say, It's central, more central than the intellect even is trained sentiment or the heart of students. And so I'm going to talk through that a little bit today. I want to give you a little bit of perspective as you're joining me for this series and uh, really a journey that I'm on as I explore Bloom's, then compare Bloom's with Aristotle's five intellectual virtues and develop Uh, what a modern educational program with Aristotle's five intellectual virtues as its goal would look like. So far in this series, um, I've most recently tried to break down the bad of Bloom's, looking at how the focus on objectivity and measurability has some real philosophical problems at the heart of it in terms of Bloom's. Uh, Bloom's taxonomy made by this group of educators, university examiners that kind of came together and tried to make education more precise by coming up with this taxonomy of educational objectives back in the 1950s. They they were really aiming for this goal of neutrality. And instead of thinking through in detail what the broad purpose of education was, which they might have come up with something more philosophically sound, like the holistic integration of a human being or or a human flourishing, they sort of relied on a lowest common denominator expression of teachers' actual goals for their courses. So they came up for the cognitive domain, things like knowledge, comprehension, uh, application, synthesis, analysis, and evaluation, things that all sound very academic and intellect focused to the neglect of the heart and the body. Of course, they proposed that there would be a second and third domain, the affective and the psychomotor, but they neglected those areas as being too subjective and fraught with problems of how you can actually measure them. And so kind of taking in the scientism of the day, they really missed something here. What I haven't yet done in this series is uh, talk about how this gets ugly in real life. In modern education, where Blooms is built into the architecture of everything we do, there are some ways that, that things get ugly in education, I think because of this neglect of the heart and overarching values and norms. 
I've already mentioned in a previous article the anxiety that's focused on grades, the disengagement that we're seeing in many of our students from the youngest grades on up. The way we've set up education seems to produce too much anxiety and disengagement to lack the natural motivation and curiosity that we would expect from students. Well, why is that the case? How has Bloom's taxonomy and the assumptions underlying it contributed to that? So I'm gonna look at two big ways that Bloom gets ugly today with you. The first, uh, I'm gonna draw on C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man for, and that's where he talks about men without chests as what modern education is making. And then the second, I'm gonna draw some ideas from Mortimer Adler. So I've got two geniuses I'm drawing from for this, so we really can't go wrong here. Um, but Mortimer Adler, in his book, Aristotle for Everyone, talks about how human beings, in fact, he structures uh, whole sections of that book on how human beings are agents and producers as well as knowers. And so I'll look at that a little bit at the end. So first though, let's think about Lewis's argument for uh, how modern education is creating men without chests in the abolition of man. You know, the, the problem again for Bloom's taxonomy is that they focus solely and initially on the cognitive domain. But it's not just that they had the cognitive domain only and didn't finish their project. Even if they had finished their project and created an effective domain and a psychomotor domain, breaking the human person up into those three areas and presuming that you could train each of those separately in education I think is part of the problem because see, we are holistic persons, we are integrated, and the true purpose or goal of education should be the harmonious ordering of the human person oriented toward the good life, ultimately God from a Christian perspective. But it's about how the different parts of us relate and in Lewis's kind of climax of his argument in the first chapter of Abolition of Man, that great treatise, which I highly recommend you read if you haven't yet, he says this, that without the aid of trained emotions, the intellect is powerless against the animal organism. So taking these three parts of us, these three, I suppose, domains, the intellect actually needs the heart the chest, trained sentiment or trained emotions in order to rule the body, the animal organism, the instincts, the desires, bodily pains and pleasures. So there's a proper ordering of who we are as human beings and education needs to, can't get away without doing some work to help order the human person. And so to just think in terms of a cognitive domain and training particular intellectual skills and abilities or even knowledge isn't going to get us there is what Lewis ultimately is saying. And he makes this great little reference to how he would rather play cards amongst someone who had absolutely absurd relativistic moral viewpoints but was trained from early childhood to believe that a gentleman never cheats than the most 
sound moral philosopher who grew up among a group of sharpers. The idea here is that it's our embodied habits of relating at the heart of who we are that will often govern how we act in the world, how we relate to others. It's not just our bare intellect or our reason. The reason cannot rule over the bodily appetites and pleasures and desires without some stable, trained sentiments. In a way, I think what Lewis is saying here is if he were talking to Bloom and his group who came up with their whole cognitive domain, educational objective taxonomy 10 years after Lewis wrote his abolition of man. I almost feel like he's directing it right at them uh, and not just the English authors of the Green Book. What he would say to them, I think, is that if you had started with the affective domain and left the rest, the cognitive and psychomotor aspects to take care of themselves, you would have been way better off than focusing first on the intellect. You see, in K through 12 education especially, it's that training of the chest, of magnanimity, of good sentiments, of values. And you know, he has this moving uh, quote that we've pro probably all heard of, or, or many of us at least has, have seen. I know at our school here in Indianapolis area, we have part of <laughs> this, passage up on our wall, nicely framed from C.S. Lewis. And if you don't, you're at another classical school, get this somewhere, where he talks about the fact that we expect virtue and enterprise of our new, you know, modern citizens, but yet we've cut the heart out of education in this way. We keep seeing through sentimentalism. And Lewis talks about how if you have a soldier on the battlefield, what's going to sustain him in the third hour of the bombardment? It's not a syllogism. It's not sheer reason that's going to sustain him in doing his duty for his country. It's some easily seen through sentimentalism about a flag or a country or a regiment, right? That's the sort of feeling that's needed to sustain us. If we want men and women, young men and women of courage, we can't keep seeing through everything valuable, all the traditional values that we as Christians embrace or should embrace wholeheartedly. So that's where Lewis goes. But let me make this real practical because the ugliness of this works itself out as it kind of worms its way into us as educators, whether home educators or teachers or administrators, when we think about what we're trying to do in the classroom, the standards, the educational objectives that we're writing on our curriculum maps and our curriculum guides, what we're going to teach tomorrow or next week, or how we're going to teach this history lesson, literature lesson, science or Bible lesson, this is the problem. And uh, in the article, which I, ex I want you to read, I, I give a long block quote from Doug Lamov's Teach Like a Champion, and I, I love what he does in many ways, but I think this section where he talks about lesson objectives really gives something away here about how when Blooms is in the architecture, this is the way we as teachers start thinking. 
We start thinking perhaps I should give up on those emotional goals, those sentimental goals of one kind or another. And so he talks about how many of his professors, whether in college or graduate school, probably wanted him to love poetry, but he, he has his master's in English and he still has to admit he doesn't love reading poetry. And so he thinks to himself, how legitimate is it if you as a teacher want your student to love something or believe something or feel something? Maybe you should just focus on those academic skills, which are after all what's necessary to get them into college. And I absolutely understand where Doug Lamov is coming from on this. I, I think we all may have had experiences where there was something in our education that we just didn't end up loving. Uh, we'd never ended up building a taste for reading poetry or this or that other thing that we experienced. But I wonder, hmm, is it really so impossible as he seems to think to actually train someone, train a child to love poetry or to enjoy something or to feel something? We think so as modern educators. But what if, instead of Doug Lamov being trained to analyze and write papers on poems, in his later years, college and grad school, learning all the skills of writing and the analytical intellect, and he goes through that and doesn't end up loving reading poetry for its own sake, and we wonder, what if instead of that, he had first encountered poetry sitting on his mother and father's lap as they read poetry to him day after day, week after week, year after year. So having that warm, affectionate relationship and um, not having a grade hanging over his head. What if he had gone to a classical grammar school and learned to memorize some of this great poetry with his fellow students and then got up in front of a group of other students and audience and gave a stunning recitation, acted out, dramatically said in front of others to thunderous applause. What, what if he had done that and continued to read poetry regularly in school from a variety of different uh, great poets without a grade hanging over his head, without the need to analyze and you know, write an essay on this particular poem every time. Don't you think there's a high percentage likelihood that he could have been trained to love reading poetry from an early age? You see, how we train our students, the means we use, must be suited to the ends we're actually getting at. And so we can't use the ends for training the abstract intellect or the analytical intellect and then be surprised that what we actually get is the ability to analyze and synthesize and write a good paper on, a critical research paper on this particular topic. That's great. Nothing against that sort of intellectual training. But if we want trained sentiments, if we want them to love reading poetry, we should use proper means. Do it in a way with bonded relationships, without, you know, um, particular goals for its own sake, for the love of it, right? If we read poetry as if for the love of it, 
regularly with students in a relationally bonded context, then they're going to develop loves. And again, this is part of the problem with Blooms is that we've pushed down, in a way, the analytical intellect and the goals of particular intellectual training and training of the reason further and further into what we might call lower school education. And that has at times crowded out the place for experiences and the, the proper means that would help train the heart that is so needed later on. If you don't love wisdom, if you don't have the right heart train, the right sentiments, you're not even going to be able to fuel and power the intellect. And the reason later on, you want students who, you know, to use an example of the book of Proverbs, who love wisdom, who seek her, who are pursuing her, who view her as more valuable than gold and silver. And if you have that piece, the love of wisdom, philosophy, this is what the Greek tradition in a way discovered in addition to the Judeo-Christian tradition, then if you have that piece, you can train incredible intellects. In fact, that they'll almost take care of themselves in their intellectual development. But if you don't have that piece, then you have to use other motivational structures, like hanging grades over kids' heads, hanging their future and their careers over their heads in order to train the intellect. But that's precisely the opposite. In a way, what Blooms has done here is put the cart before the horse. And when that happens, we just crash and all get in a mess. So this is Lewis's basic argument in Men Without Chess. And he draws from Plato for this idea that the reason must govern the animal instincts, if you will, the body through the chest, through the heart. They are the necessary stewards or messengers from the head to the body. Well, lastly, my second point or way that Blooms gets ugly in real life comes from Mortimer Adler's uh, thinking about men as, or human beings as both actors, doers, and producers and not just knowers. And uh, this is where I think that he, he's drawing from Aristotle and, and trying to explain Aristotle to us all as modern people who think in very different categories. But this, again, kind of throws another wrench into Bloom's taxonomy of those, you know, different orders or, or categories of cognitive domains, skills, intellectual abilities and skills. And, and that's because when Bloom's structured it in terms of cognitive, affective and psychomotor, he didn't deal with the proper ordering of those things. And the fact that as human beings, we normally engage our thinking in three different ways. We have a, a type of thinking that we use when we're creating something, we're producing something in the world. We have a type of thinking that we use when we're acting in the world, relating to others and making decisions with regard to human goods and flourishing. And then we have a way of thinking when we're engaging with knowledge itself and, and thinking out things about the world as it works, the, and, and even about how the mind works itself, how knowledge works itself. So we have these different parts of us, and 
or what he calls them is dimensions rather than parts of us because at each of those places there is thinking going on there's trained sentiment and there's bodily engagement with the world so when we're thinking about producing something in the world we have to come up with a a plan in our minds we think it out we have feelings about it we have trained ideas and values and then we also produce it actively in the world you could think of someone you know making a house and the, the project of producing something in the world like that but then there's also acting in the world right we we are actors we we do things in the world we relate to one another we act with regard to human goods and again our head, our heart, and our hands are involved fully in that process. And then, of course, with knowing as well, you know, just to think takes a certain bodily focus and conditioning and, um, and a heart for, you know, intellectual things mattering. We, ha we have to have a certain set of sentiments to care about knowledge itself and to go about the process of knowledge in the right way. So the point is that I think Aristotle's five intellectual virtues solve this head, heart, hands problem because it recognizes that intellectual virtues actually involve all three of Bloom's cognitive dom uh, domains, the cognitive, the affective, and the psychomotor, the head, heart, and the hands. We have to have all working harmoniously for any of the intellectual virtues and we actually for Aristotle in the five intellectual virtues have an intellectual virtue for making things creating or producing things in the world it's techne art artistry or craftsmanship we might um, talk about it as and there are many different types of crafts all of them involve from Aristotle's perspective the ability to produce something to make something in the world that was not there before. This would include the liberal arts, by the way, and I'll explain that more fully later. But we could go to the same thing in um, the heart, the intellectual virtue with of acting with regard to human goods is phronesis or practical wisdom. We might call it prudence. It's that practical sort of wisdom that's focused on how do I relate in the world and it's connected to all the moral virtues that uh, Aristotle discusses in the Nicomachean Ethics. And then with regard to knowing, he has three intellectual virtues, and those are intuition or nous, which is the ability to perceive uh, both particulars and universals, and then uh, knowledge, scientific knowledge, the ability to demonstrate that something is the case. And finally, Sophia or philosophic wisdom, the flowering of those two combined having both intuition about an area, the right first principles, you might say, and then a true course of reasoning or demonstration about them leads to philosophic wisdom. The big picture here, as I, as I bring this home, is that each of those sets of intellectual virtues have the heart in them. And in a way, what Blooms has done is neglected two of those that are most crucial for the K through 12 educational experience. Art craftsmanship is absolutely central. It involves them in the process of making and doing. And this is in a way Dorothy Sayers' great insight from the lost tools of learning. These are tools. We're actively engaging with production of something 
using the, the grist of knowledge. And, and that's, again, Dorothy Sayers' point in Lost Tools of Learning essay. We've also neglected the heart of living in the world, living well, the good life, and moral virtue. And the intellectual virtue associated with that is, again, practical wisdom or phronesis. And that just kills so many subjects. When you don't focus on phronesis um, in, say, history, or literature, but instead you're focused on simply knowledge, as if they could attain to uh, pure philosophic wisdom about literature um, in the early grades. Again, wrong focus, wrong goal, ultimately. And then lastly is those intellectual virtues, which themselves, I believe, the most neglected one in our modern educational experience is intuition, the Greek nous. You need enough experience to actually develop the proper intuition for things. And again, we don't give that to our students because we're focused solely on knowledge and subskills associated with knowledge. Well, I'll break down more in my next um, article and uh, short talk that I'll give for you all here exactly a comparison between uh, Aristotle's intellectual virtues and Bloom's taxonomy. I kind of gave you more of that in this little talk than is even in the article, but I got carried away. I was excited. Um, I really think there's something to this vision of Aristotle's intellectual virtues and reading Mortimer Adler's book, Aristotle for Everyone, just helped solidify my thinking on that. So I hope you're enjoying this. I hope you see that it's practical that the motivation problems, the curiosity issues, the loves for the right things that we're dealing with often with especially our oldest students who have gone through a kind of normal modern educational paradigm, they may be due to some flaws in how we set things up from the very earliest parts of K through 12 education, assuming Bloom's taxonomy was the thing, rather than that we should focus toward the heart, toward uh, what Kevin Clark and Ravi Jane call a, a musical education, drawing from Plato and Aristotle and this whole classical tradition that saw musical and gymnastic training, right? Training of the hearts and their bodies through dance and things that are good and true and beautiful that they simply appreciate and take into themselves and feed on. Neglecting those things is part of what sets us on the wrong trajectory here through, through a Bloom's-focused on focus on the bare intellect. Hope you uh, enjoyed. Um, share with others you know, like, comment below, um, and glad to have you here part of this educational renaissance as we try to keep spreading the renaissance to others and promoting this renaissance of ancient wisdom for the modern era. Thanks.